Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Dr. Peter Baldwin, a clinical research fellow and clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, Australia. Peter is an expert on burnout, a poorly understood condition that has received growing attention during the COVID-19 pandemic. While burnout is not a diagnosable mental illness, it is having a major impact on workers in occupations as diverse as healthcare, emergency services, legal, journalism, childcare and teaching. Indeed, Peter manages a Black Dog Institute service that is allowing Australian health professionals to remain anonymous when seeking help for burnout or mental illnesses such as depression and PTSD. The service called The Essential Network has been running for two years and has already been accessed by 10,000 health workers. Interviewing Peter is Dean Yates, who we're delighted to share has rejoined us as host of the Mind Dharma podcast. We hope you enjoy the episode. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the various lands on which this podcast is recorded. We acknowledge their deep and ongoing spiritual connection to the land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders and leaders, past, present and emerging. And in doing so, we acknowledge and honour the spirit of Makarata and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. Peter, can you explain what burnout means? What does it look and feel like for someone in the workplace? I guess, you know, there's the research definition and then there's what we actually live through. So from a research point of view, it's things like physical and emotional exhaustion, um, things like feeling like you're really not part of the team or really not able to, you know, really get into and enjoy your work the way you used to, feeling like you're not getting anything done or that you're not being successful at all. Um, and then often there's a sense of cynicism around what you're doing, that it's, it's actually, it's not worth doing anymore, or the organisation that you're working for doesn't care anymore. Um, and of course, all of those things can leave people feeling really, really horrible about themselves. And for the lived experience side of things, it's usually people get, you know, people's mood takes a real dip, their confidence takes a real hit, and they can be left feeling really, really low, as low as someone who's experiencing a depressive episode. Do you think that workplaces understand the depth of the physical and emotional pain in burnout? I mean, people can literally be on their last legs, can't they? Mm, Look, no, I, I honestly, I don't think so. And I think it's like all challenges with mental health. People don't really get it until they've lived it. And I think there are a lot of employers out there who still think that things like burnout is something that, well, the the person who's experienced it just hasn't managed things properly. Um, And they, you know, it's hard for all of us to look in that mirror, particularly in leadership roles when we're so busy. But I think a lot of organisations are reluctant to realise that what people are going through is, is horrible and it rearranges people's entire lives. So in 2019, the WHO included burnout in the 11th International Classification of Diseases as an occupational phenomenon. It defined burnout as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. What do you think of that definition? I'm not a fan of that definition, I'm afraid. I'm certainly, I'm not a fan of including burnout as, you know, in a a catalogue of diseases like the, the ICD does because it's really not a disease. Um, but I really don't like that because it seems to place the onus on the individual to manage burnout. 
Um, and really the honor should be on the system that causes the problem rather than the person who's experiencing the problem. Um, and I think it also, I, I'm not a fan of the, the idea of it's just a, a workplace phenomenon without clearly defining a workplace, because a lot of parents will tell you that the home is a workplace sometimes. Um, and parents who are not necessarily in the workforce can become just as burnt out as the rest of us if they've got unrelenting stress and no way out of it. So notwithstanding the fact that you, you don't really like the definition of the WHO with burnout, has that helped in some way, though, in, in raising awareness of burnout in the workplace and, and maybe reduced a bit of stigma around burnout? I'd love to say yes, but I really don't think that it has. I think it's raised awareness of burnout, but in a misdirected way where we're saying, well, there's this thing that's called burnout now, but again, we're still defining it as a problem that a person has rather than a problem that a system has. Um, and also in terms of reducing stigma, I think we're, we're, we've still got so much work to do around all sorts of mental health challenges. But burnout, again, particularly in certain industries, is highly stigmatised still. You know, you can hear it's, it's one thing for, you know, for, for HR to send around a presentation or a PDF about what burnout is, but it's quite another for someone to go through a situation where they're off work for a period of time, they go through an awful workers' compensation situation, they try and get any kind of, you know, help or support from the organisation. That can be a really horrible process for people to go through and a highly stigmatised process. And the, the, the lack of clarity around burnout adds insult to injury because it's not a diagnosable thing. So, again, it's kind of this nebulous thing where it's like, well, really, is this person just not fit for the role or do they not belong in the industry rather than, well, actually the industry is a really difficult place to stay mentally healthy and we need to change it. So I'd love to say yes, but I don't think it's helped that much. Yeah, got it, got it. You were recently part of an online panel hosted by Mindarma and the Black Dog Institute on burnout and fatigue. More than 400 people attended the live session and 600 people have, have since watched that recording. Seems to suggest that people are very concerned about, about burnout. Is there any data on its prevalence in the, in the workplace? And, and is burnout as common as depression or anxiety, for example? I guess my area of research is really health professionals, which is a you know an industry that's well known for burnout. And so a recent study, or it was a sort of end of twenty twenty, and it was largely people in Melbourne. So certainly people who were going through the pointy end of the pandemic at that stage, but the burnout rates were through the roof. They really were. We were looking. We were looking at you know ninety percent of the sample reporting you know, burnout at a level where we'd be really concerned about their well-being. Um, and at Black Dog, at our, you know, we collect data around our service for health professionals. And of, you know, almost 10,000 health professionals have completed mental health assessments through the service. 93% of them are reporting really significant burnout. So the scale goes up to three, so it measures sort of between zero and three, and the average score is 2.7. So... That's so you're saying 90% of health professionals are registering, but I just can't get my head around this. But what does that mean in, in actual symptoms for these health professionals? What are, what are they experiencing? You know, I think a lot of them are experiencing a lot of disengagement and disenfranchisement with the health profession. Um, but a lot of them are just physically and emotionally exhausted. They have nothing left to give. They're dragging themselves out of bed. And, you know, they're dragging themselves out of bed into a system that 
you know, it's been broken for decades and we've known that. It's not something that has just come from the pandemic. But also, you know, they're largely they're dealing with people who aren't necessarily ready to accept the help and support that they're offering. And it's a it's a huge ask. There are a lot of health professionals out there who, you know, as you said before, they're, they're kind of they're on their last legs. Let's come back to the health professionals in a, in a moment. Are there specific work-related risk factors that play a role in burnout? Yes. So workplaces where there are excessive hours, so long working hours, um, very stressful situations, situations where people experience either sort of interpersonal or physical violence, so either being yelled or screamed at or hit physically, um, you know, any situation where people might be asked to act against their values and morals, uh, where decision-making can be life or death and very challenging, that can be a risk factor as well. But also a big risk factor is unsupportive workplaces, um, places where they don't feel like they're supported, places where the job design doesn't match people's mental health needs, so people have very little autonomy at work. Um, all of those factors are you know, uh, things that really, they're, they're very, in the research anyway, they're very clear predictors of burnout. And what impact has COVID played in all this? Oh, I think, you know, COVID's really highlighted the problems. It certainly exacerbated them, but it's really come along. It's really been more a straw that's broken the camel's back rather than anything that in and of itself caused a big a big problem. Um, you know, a lot of industries were already operating very close to the edge of burnout. Um, and it really, it's, I think COVID pushed a lot of people over the edge. I think the silver lining is, as you mentioned before, the discussion is now being had and there's more funding being put into research on, you know, the risks of burnout. And also, I think a lot of organisations are starting to realise that there's something they can do. They're starting to look in that mirror and realise that they do have a role to play. Um, but I would say that's largely in the private sector where there's a lot of time and money um, in things like healthcare, teaching, um, law, all of those sorts of professions where there's no, there's, there might be lots of money, but there's not necessarily a lot of time or there's a lot of tradition that pushes against acknowledging these kind of problems. Not so much action in those industries. So you talked a little, a little while ago about the horrendous rates of burnout in, in healthcare workers and Sive in her introduction uh, mentioned the essential network or 10 uh, that you are managing for the Black Dog Institute. Can you explain what this service does? That was a service that we set up in conjunction with the federal government towards the beginning of the pandemic, sort of in April or May of 2020. And really the purpose of it was to build an online hub where health professionals could come and get the mental health support that they need and want. So it's a digital first service. So initially people come and, and interact with the digital part of it. They can access self-help you know, resources, they can access um, online mental health programs like Mindama um, that are clinically validated. We know that they work and they can do them 24-7 in complete confidentiality. Um, there's peer support, but, you know, in addition to all of that, there's a telehealth clinic that was built by and for health professionals. It's, you know, it's completely separate from Medicare. It's separate from any employee assistance program. People can come and they can use pseudonyms if they want. They can turn their camera off if they want. Um, and they, you know, they have immediate access to mental health experts. So it's only clinical psychology and psychiatry. Um, and our wait lists are around four to six weeks rather than four to six months. So the, the purpose was really to try and provide a mental health service that health professionals might actually use 
and so far it's it's been reasonably successful not with not without a lot of blood sweat and tears but we're seeing lots of health professionals actually seeking mental health support for the first time ever in their life this sounds quite a unique service peter um it, it, it almost sounds like you're trying and you have achieved uh and you've been able to create a safe space for medical professionals is that is that is that correct you know, I, that's what we really tried to do. And, and, and recently we've seen time and time again that it really is what we've ended up doing, which we're very proud of. Um, like I said, it was very hard work and we weren't, you know, there was a lot of trial and error. But I didn't realise how unique it was until recently we were speaking with a representative from the World Health Organisation about, about featuring it in their annual um, WISH report, WISH report, about the state of healthcare. Um, and it's actually being held out as an example of the types of health, the types of mental health services that health professionals need, you know, around the world. So um, it's certainly something that we're quite proud of, but it also is a reminder that these types of services are very rare, even though the need is extremely large. So as you said, this program was established very quick after COVID hit in May, April, May 2020. What has really stood out to you? two years on about this service? I think it's just the, it sounds, it, it sounds a bit grim, but the scope of the problem, just how many people out there are experiencing burnout and how little recognition and support there is. So of course, 10 is just for health professionals. We have a, we have a sibling service that are for emergency service workers. But then we've got people like, you know, particularly people in the legal profession who we know experience a lot of burnout or high risk of, of di being diagnosed with a mental health disorder. You know, veterinarians who are not unfortunately included as health professionals for some weird reason. Um, you know, people like teachers who have an enormous workload and also often work a long hours in unsupportive environments with a very little autonomy. And then there's people outside the workforce who do unpaid work like volunteers, parents, all of those sorts of people. Um, you know, the fact that all of these people are out there needing that support and we can only, you know, access a small portion of one of those groups, it just really, I guess I didn't expect the problem to be as big as it was and the solutions to be so few. Are you finding that organisations, hospitals, medical services are you able to feed back to these organisations, hospital administrators, and say, look, you guys have a major crisis on your hands. You have to do something about this? Yeah, so I, I, <laughs> there's probably a few people in their health profession across Australia who are very sick of hearing me say that. So we've been really lucky, honestly, with the 10 Project in that we've had, we've been collaborating with the, the medical colleges, with the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Association, the psychologists, physiotherapists, all the senior organisations. And really, that I mean, they really are aware of the scope of the problem. But I think as tempting as it is to blame any one individual or any one organisation, we need to come together as a system and see that this is actually greater than the sum of its parts and the only way through it is together. And really, I think a lot of people are really open to it, but you really are trying to turn around the tanker. This is a, this is a system that's been in place for a long time and not only is it a you know, it's a, it's a technological system, but it's also a cultural system. There are grand traditions in medicine and nursing and psychology around not talking about these things, about, you know, long hours and lack of autonomy earlier in your career as being a badge of honour or, you know, absolute best 
you know, a, a, a trial by fire, there's a lot of pushback around acknowledging that what we've been doing for such a long time and as part of our culture might actually be the cause of the problem. So I guess the interest is there, but the, the, the time and effort and particularly money that's required is, is daunting. It really is. Let, let's just talk about some of the other occupations where there is um, where there are jobs with a higher risk of, of burnout. And, and you, I'm sure you've come across this as well. Can you just talk about those for a, for a moment where you see this greater risk of burnout and, and what are those organisations doing to try to combat uh, this phenomenon? The careers that really come to mind for me that really concern me are uh, uh, vets, uh, legal profession and other sort of professions, other professional, you know, groups that are exposed to vicarious trauma. Um, so people who are perhaps, you know, in journalism and are, are witnessing and telling stories but are not necessarily provided much support to process those stories themselves. Um, and, and uh, you know, one that's really been in my mind is teachers and that list is not, it's not exhaustive. There are others out there. But, you know, we know that these, we know, we knew going into the pandemic that these, these, all, these industries had high rates of mental illness, they had high rates of self-harm and suicide. They've already got those risk factors there. And then the occupational situation they're in has all of the hallmarks of burnout. They've got long hours, stressful jobs, lack of control over what they do during the work, often unsupportive workplaces. To me, it's a bit of a perfect storm. And I think about, you know, the rates that we see of suicide, particularly in the legal profession and, and you know, among veterinarians. Um, that was already a problem that urgently needed addressing before we asked those people to work overtime um, at home with their screaming children or whatever it was. Um, I think, yeah. Talk about teachers for a second, Peter, because they don't often come up as occupations seen as... For ordinary people, wouldn't see teachers at high risk of, of the of burnout or trauma or high stress. I mean, we know the hours are terrible and so on, but it's not that they would not generally be perceived as, say, at risk like first responders are or the medical profession. But the research and, and, and your people like yourself really are, are trying to highlight the risk to teachers, aren't you? Absolutely. And I think... You know, if you if you live the day of a lot in the life of a teacher, you would probably you know have a different sense of it. Teachers are highly multi-skilled, and their days are highly unpredictable, and they're dealing with a precious resource. <laughs> they're dealing with children. You know, one minute they you know are teaching geography, the next minute they're dealing with an emotional crisis, the next minute they've got you know, a young student who's had, the, you know, he's menstruating for the first time and they have to navigate that. Then all of a sudden someone's going home sick and they have to worry about, is that a COVID case? Who do I need to notify? Then they've got to, you know, they've got to go and, you know, answer emails from concerned parents. And then they've got to go home and have their own life as well. Add to that, you know, things like infection control, um, you know, crowd control, all of those sorts of things that, you know, really they're not trained for, but we expect it of them for, you know, on average, relatively low pay compared to their education and experience. I think that's a really tough ask. I think if you think about it that way, suddenly, you know, burnout and mental ill health seems very logical. So what can workplaces do to create psychologically safe environments, reduce the chance of burnout? Yes, the, the answer is simple but not easy. So really there's the, you know, the organizational psychology literature offers a lot of a lot of options, but again, they really they require time and money and they really 
go against the grain of a lot of occupational cultures. So, I mean, really the first thing is just to normalise talking, having conversations about mental health at work. So, and giving people really clear channels for talking about it. That's, you know, you can mention it in a meeting or a stand-up, but, you know, people are going to be reluctant to talk to you unless they know it's absolutely safe and they've got a clear way of doing it. You know, also normalising making mistakes in workplaces there are a lot of people who go to work and really try and do their best and they're absolutely terrified of making mistakes because their culture really, really frowns on it. And it's very easy to become very mentally unwell when you're trying to be perfect all the time, not because that you're a bad person, but because you're a human being. And also, I think, you know, having conversations about managing unrealistic expectations in the workplace can be really, really important. You know, starting every meeting or at least important meetings with what are our expectations going into this and us is, you know, it might people's health suffer if we try and meet those expectations. Just really lays things out. There's no subtext. It doesn't sort of spiral into resentment. Someone's never about aren't fulfilled. All of those things are really, really clear. And you can also calibrate it to people's actual abilities at the time rather than what you think their abilities are or what you just simply demand that their abilities are. So much of the angst that goes around that lack of psychological safety is not knowing what's expected and what's not or when you might make a mistake or sort of you breach the social rules of the organisation. And, you know, the number one thing that you can do to, to increase psychological safety is deal with bullies. Workplace bullying is something that's a fact of life. But often what happens, and certainly what I've seen happen time and time again in healthcare, is the system shifts to accommodate the bully because no one wants to deal with them. And that affects everyone else in the system. If you've got a bully, I guarantee you've got at least two or three really good workers who are suffering and thinking of leaving your organisation. Times that by three or five years. And it's just, I mean, if it's not for the mental health of your, if, if your employees and your colleagues, do it for your bottom line deal with bullies. I think I've seen statistics which show something like a third of all workers' compensation claims relate in in the mental health realm relate to workplace bullying. It's a huge problem. And I I really do feel for people who are in leadership roles who aren't trained or experienced. Um, And some people in leadership roles actually experience bullying by their subordinates. Mm -hmm. So it's not a difficult, it's not, it's sorry, it's not an easy problem to address. And there, you know, I mean, there are people out there who work out in this space who can help you address it. Um, I guarantee you, the the time, the the short term and the long term gains are really obvious. You know, not even just in the psychological research, but but when we do economic analyses of dealing with these problems, the the bottom line argument is there as well. Peter, uh, what gets in the way of folks reaching out for support? Why do so many people avoid or put off uh, seeking help for burnout? I think the, you know, the reasons are really similar to the reasons a lot of people don't seek support for mental health problems. Um, you know, I think, first of all, we don't want to be that person who seeks support. Um, we all want to be that person who deals with it by ourselves. And often we find ourselves in workplaces or families or relationships where that's what's expected to, you know, in order to be to belong, we have to gut it out. Um, there's also, you know, the whole the stigma in society around seeking help is still huge. It really is still huge. Um, so, again, we don't want to be seen as being a certain sort of person. 
Another one is actually finding a service. There's a lot of strain on the health system at the moment and accessing mental health care is really difficult, let alone navigating the mental health system itself. And then when you add to that all of the other things that make it difficult for it to do anything, like, you know, like getting to and from work on time, logging into that meeting, you know, taking the kids to sport, whatever it is, it's, it's really hard to fit that in. And it's especially hard if it's something that you're already reluctant to do. You know, that's going to feel completely overwhelming. Peter, another thing that um, I've, I've seen you talk about and, and other professionals is that if someone is struggling with the symptoms of burnout and they don't seek support or help, they are actually at greater risk of developing uh, mental illness or mm. other physical illness. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that plays out? Yeah, so they certainly can be, um, particularly if they've had uh, difficulties with mental health in the past. So it's, you know, it's unfortunately mental health is one of those things where the things that we know work are the things that either we're reluctant to do or society shames us for doing. And those are really, you know, they're really simple, you know, talking to people about it, setting boundaries and saying no, you know, taking a little bit more of control over your life and what you do and how you use your time. Caring for yourself, self-care is seen as an indulgence, but it's really not. It's just basic good self-health care and, and seeking mental health support. Those are just really key things. But when you do those things, all of a sudden eyebrows get raised about, well, why do you need them? Why haven't you, as the World Health Organisation would say, haven't managed this properly? It's tough. So what I don't understand, Peter, is that as a society in Australia, we seem to have gone a long way in normalising the conversation around mental health in general. Uh, we have all these mental health campaigns. We've had this for years. We have a lot of high-profile people, sports people, celebrities who talk about good mental health. Why has this not filtered into the workplace? It's a real challenge, I think, for a lot of employers because it opens a bit of a can of worms. It opens a financial can of worms, a legal can of worms, all of those sorts of things. And a lot of employers and organisations aren't supported to do it. You know, these types of things are expensive to actually run these kinds of training programs and upskill people. But also, employers don't necessarily want to run the risk of assuming any kind of legal liability for someone's health. And then you add to that, you know, as I was mentioning before, workplace cultures where it's just weakness. If you need support, you don't belong. Pushing up against that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Either want to be part of that culture and they don't want to give up that badge of honour, or they themselves are the ones who really need support and they don't want to start the conversation. Can you talk us through what the research says about treating burnout? What are some specific strategies that can help folks? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's not too much research, but really of the little research that's there, um, things for, you know, strategies from cognitive behaviour therapy seem to be the most effective. Um, and, 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 and really simple psychosocial things as well, like reaching out and talking to people. Um, we know that talking to other people and sharing, particularly with people who understand what you're going through, is really important. Seeking mental health support, obviously, is a predictor of good outcomes. So those are things that people can do. But in terms of some strategies, you know, really tackling unrealistic expectations um, and setting boundaries are really, really important. 
I know that at the moment, particularly in the last couple of years, there's been this, this, a pandemic of unrealistic expectations from employers, from friends, from children, from parents, from everyone. And the pressure to meet those expectations can, can feel overwhelming, suffocating. Um, and really that's, you know, unfortunately, our ancestors passed that on to us. It was the ancestors who understood that meeting expectations means you stay in the social group and you stay alive. We got their genes, but we got their problems as well. So really understanding and we're having clear conversations about what you can do versus what you might love to do. I'd love to be able to help you, but I can't do it this week. I can next week. Or saying, I'm sorry, I just can't help you with that right now. Or those hours are too long, or we're going to have to drop one of the social activities, whatever it is. We all hate doing it, but it can be very, very effective for burnout. Finally, Peter, you're very busy. You see clients in private practice. You manage all these projects at the Black Dog Institute. How do you take care of your well-being? How do you want to self-care? <laughs> I'm much better at it than I used to be, particularly at the start of the pandemic. Um, but for me, you know, I, a, I have clinical training, so I know the warning signs. And that's something that everyone can do is start to think about what burnout feels like in their mind and body and be on the lookout for it so it doesn't get away from you. Um, I have a dog who is very demanding about <laughs> the types of exercise he gets and when he gets it. So I don't have much choice at five o'clock other than to switch off um, or at least to switch off the monitor. Um, but for me, I really, I've seen the other side of it. I know what can happen. And, and for me, the, the kind of lived experience story is I worked so hard for so many years that I ended up with chronic pain. Um, and in order to manage that, I really need to, I need to look after my nervous system. I really do. So there's that barrier there. Um, but also I, I, this is, you know, a lot, I, I, I imagine a lot of people would be listening and sort of, you know, either rolling their eyes or wish they had my job, but I have a really supportive employer. You know, I can go to my boss anytime and, and talk to her about what I need I know that the Black Dog Institute is going to support me. Um, and so really, again, I guess from a lived experience point of view, that's how I know that the employer piece of the puzzle works and is so important. It's a weight off my mind to know that that's there if I need it. What sort of impact do you think there would be on mental illness in this country if everyone had a supportive employer? Honestly, I think there would be a huge impact on mental illness in this country. You know, I think I think about even just things like the four-day work week that are, you know, they're building empirical support for that. But, you know, it's not the industrial revolution anymore. You don't need to work five days a week, nine to five. It's an old model that's exhausting people. It's not a good fit. But imagine being able to go to a workplace that was psychologically safe, where you could make mistakes and that you were forgiven. If you could, you know, you could make a mistake rather than being a mistake. You know, if you had different views from people, you wouldn't be criticised, they'd be explored and honoured, and that bullying was just not okay. You knew that if it happened, it would be dealt with immediately. I can imagine millions of nervous systems that would breathe an immediate sigh of relief if that was the state of, of workplace, you know, mental health in Australia. And kind of, you know, a dream of the day. Wow. Peter, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights on burnout. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Mind Armour podcast today.
Oh, that's all right. That's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to me ramble on about my favorite topic. The Mind Dharma podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.